Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game-changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist Aftermath. Today, we'll be talking to aerospace consultant and author of Truth, Lies, and O-Rings Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster, Alan McDonald. Let's hear what he has to say about the Challenger disaster. Hi, Alan. How are you? Oh, just fine. How are you? I'm good. We're so excited to have you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be there. If I can provide any knowledge on Challenger, I guess is your discussion. So maybe we can just jump right in. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could start off by uh, giving us a sense of of what the NASA program and space travel was uh, in the early 80s. Well, in the early 80s, uh, the intent was to provide a international space station eventually in orbit. And that space station would be essentially assembled by using the space shuttle. But the space shuttle also had some other uh, <clears throat> commitments to make. 
And one of those was that the administration in 1986, in fact, uh, declared that the nation was going to go on to a shuttle-only policy. And what that meant that all of the other expendable launch vehicles, including the Atlas and the Titan and the Delta, uh, would be <clears throat> essentially mothballed. And all of those military payloads would be carried by the space shuttle along with all other, even commercial satellites as well. So the space shuttle was to be our only access to space. And NASA was planning to increase the launch rate of the space shuttle in order to fulfill such an obligation to a at least two space shuttle flights every single month every other week, starting in 1988, two years after the Challenger failed. And in addition to that, they were developing some more powerful upper stages for planetary exploration. They required the modification of some orbiters, and they just initiated a new launch site in California at Vandenberg Air Force Base, where they would carry uh, most of the military satellites into orbit from Vandenberg. And they actually had uh, that system stacked on the launch pad at Vandenberg at the time of Challenger, uh, the boosters and the tank, and they were waiting for the orbiter to be transferred over there to put it on the stack. So they were scheduled to launch that in like May of 1986. So they had a huge amount on their plate. They had planned to... Uh, increase the launch rate and close down these other launch vehicles. And so it was a humongous problem of scheduling, obviously. Yes. And at the time of the Challenger uh, disaster, what, what was your job and what was your connection to NASA? Well, my job at the time of the Challenger disaster was the director of the Space Shuttle Solid Rocket Motor Program or the contractor that built the solid rocket boosters. It was Martin Thiokol. And as part of that uh, assignment, uh, I was rotating with my boss, who was the vice president of space programs, alternately on every launch because there had to be a senior official from each of the major contractors in residence at the Cape and in the launch control center and a few days before that for the final flight readiness reviews to make sure that everything was operating properly. And if it wasn't, they had the responsibility to get things fixed or make decisions. One of those decisions was they were the ones to make the decision to either go for launch or not. I was uh, at the Kennedy Space Center for the Challenger launch for that, for that responsibility. And can you uh, walk us through what happened the night before uh, the January 28th launch? Or, per, you know, if, if you have any information, even the, a few days before. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, the original launch date for the, for the shuttle, for the Challenger, was a couple of days before that. And I remember going to the flight readiness review, and one of the last, called L-1, one day before. And the weather report from uh, Patrick Air Force Base, done by the Air Force, uh, said that, in their opinion, there was just a high probability of rain showers during the launch window. And as a result, 
NASA scrub for that launch, which everyone was rather uh, excited about that because that launch was scheduled for that Sunday, which was Super Bowl Sunday. I remember watching the game. But I also went out that morning, and the weather was perfect. Just uh, those rain showers they were worried about didn't come in until late in the afternoon, and the launch was scheduled in the morning. So we missed a perfectly good opportunity to launch that Sunday. Well, the following Monday then, when they were ready to launch, they were just about to go into the final countdown, which is when they switch over from ground power to onboard power. And one of the last things they do before they make that change is they close the crew cabin and lock the door and remove the handle because it's a protuberance on the vehicle. And they couldn't get the handle of the door off of the crew cabin. Hmm. So they had to stop the uh, count and have a big hold. They had a hold, and they brought up a a whole suitcase full of battery-operated tools because they can only use battery operation when the uh, system is totally fueled. And uh, it so happened the batteries were all dead. So they couldn't get the handle off, so they finally sent for some guy to bring in this high aerospace tech tool to remove it. It was called a hacksaw. And they literally cut the handle off of the orbiter, and that takes some time, a big, thick aluminum bar with the hacksaw. And they used up most of the launch window in order to finally get the handle off because they could still open it from the inside and declare it was ready to go back into the town. Well, by the time they got back into the town, there was a front coming towards the Cape, and there were some very strong ground winds out in front of this. And the ground winds were so high, they violated the launch commit criteria for the ground winds to be able to return the orbiter back to the Cape if they had to get off of the stack because of some problem. So they had to scrub that launch. Well, so happened that that front that came through that scrubbed that launch, behind it was a huge coal front. And I remember leaving the launch control center and going to my friend's house in Titusville, who was the vice president of our space services that actually stacked the shuttle together in the vehicle assembly building and getting a phone call from one of my people who worked for me by the name of Bob Edling. And he said, Al, he said, we just heard that a meteorologist in Orlando is saying that uh, behind these winds that scrubbed our launch today, there's extreme cold front heading toward the Cape. And it may be as cold as 18 degrees Fahrenheit by tomorrow morning at the opening of the launch window. I said, good grief. I'm really worried that our O-ring seals in these boosters between all the joints in the boosters will operate properly at those kind of temperatures. And he says, well, we are too. And our engineers asked me to call you to see if you could get from NASA the actual hour-by-hour forecast at the launch site, not in Orlando, so that we can calculate what the temperature is going to be in our O-ring seals at the opening of the launch window. And I said, fine, I will do that. But when I do that and send you this information, here's what I want you to do. I want you to assemble the engineers, have them evaluate the situation, be prepared to make a presentation this evening that I will arrange a teleconference, tying our engineers in with the engineers at NASA at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and also the NASA management and myself here at the Kennedy Space Center. 
And I want you to present what we know and don't know. And But at the end of it, I want the vice president of engineering to make a recommendation. What is the lowest temperature that is safe to launch? And at that time, I was in program management. And I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable I can make that decision because program managers also have to worry about schedules and costs and budgets and customer relations. This is a thorny technical issue that must be determined on its technical merits only. And that was the uh, conversation we had that evening. They, we had the conference. I set it up. And they presented their data. And at the end of it, the vice president of engineering got up and says, based on the information presented, he would not recommend launching below 53 degrees Fahrenheit. And I thought that was a slam dunk. They would just accept that. And I was surprised at NASA's resistance to accepting that recommendation. Can you explain to us the function of the O-rings? The O-rings, these boosters solid rocket boosters are so large. They're 12 feet in diameter, and uh, they have about 300,000 pounds of solid propellant in each section. So there's four sections that actually make one solid rocket booster, and they're made back here in Utah and put on rail cars and sent as segments all the way to the Kennedy Space Center where they are stacked on the mobile launch platform, just like you would stack up beer cans on top of each other. But every place you put one beer can on another one, that is uh, one segment on top of the other. There's a joint there. It's called a tang and clevis joint. Uh, It's very much to the tongue and groove joint in a hardwood floor, where one piece slips into the other. The difference is here that this has to also have a gas seal, So there's two O-ring grooves in the clevis part of the joint that contain these fluorocarbon rubber O-rings that are 12 feet in diameter to make sure that the gas can't get out of the joint if it ever gets there. And in each one of these joints, there's two of these O-rings for redundancy. So if one fails, the other one should pick it up to make it safer. And this was a requirement in the shuttle. The problem that we had found was one year earlier, in January 1985, uh, a flight, that flight of January, just one year before Challenger, when we we recovered these boosters under parachutes out in the ocean after they burn up their propellant. And we send them back to Utah to reload them with propellant. But when we pulled them apart, we saw something we had never seen before. And what we saw was a huge amount of black soot trapped between the two O-rings, meaning that some hot gas got past the first O-ring called the primary, but stopped by the second O-ring called the secondary. It was very thick, and it went almost all the way around the circumference of this joint. And we saw that in one joint on each booster on each side. We'd never seen this. And we couldn't understand why that happened. We thought maybe there was some manufacturing defects or assembly problems. We went through all the history, and the only thing we found that we thought probably caused it was that was the coldest launch we'd ever had in the shuttle program, 53 degrees at that time, and that we felt the O-rings were starting to get stiff and therefore didn't seal 
as well as they should when this joint starts to open, expands a bit when it gets pressurized. And so that was why the engineers really recommended we don't launch at any temperature below that because this was kind of a scary thing. It didn't cause any failure. We still had one good O-ring, but they didn't feel comfortable going below that, and they did not know how far we could go before it could not seal at all. And NASA got upset with the recommendation because we didn't have any hard test data that said we couldn't operate properly lower than that. Two, we didn't have any hard analysis, quantitative analysis, that said we couldn't operate below that. All we had was these, quote, qualitative analysis, which was photographs that uh, our chief seal expert by the name of Roger Beaujolais presented at the meeting showing this black soot trapped between these O-rings. And NASA said, yeah, but you had one other case where you saw something like this that was warmer, which was true. It was in the 70s, but he put that one down and showed that it was very light gray, so it hardly went around the, the joint at all. And he said in his professional opinion is, what we're seeing here is the effect of temperature in these big 12-foot diameter joints when you have all a stack up of tolerances and all. And we don't know how much lower we can go when we might lose the whole capability of seeing. So that was the whole night's conversation. And uh, based on that, NASA would not accept that recommendation based on the data presented. And they asked my boss, we didn't have other data, or what his position was. And he said he had to agree with the engineers whether he wanted to go off on see if we had any other data because they implied that maybe we had some other data or that we should be doing some analysis to really pin this down as to whether it was as serious as we thought. Well, they went into a conference and came back about a half hour later, and I was at Kennedy saying they re-examined all the data they had and concluded it was okay to proceed on with the launch as planned with no temperature restriction. And at wow. that point, one of the NASA officials said, well, we need, and they didn't question what, any data that changed that. They said that we need to have that recommendation put in writing and signed by a responsible fire call official. And that was me. And I made the smartest decision ever made in my lifetime. I told them I would not sign that recommendation because I didn't see any anything that would have changed my mind that it was unsafe to fly. And therefore, I wouldn't sign it. So they had to have my boss sign it back in Utah, the vice president. He had to fax it down to me at the Cape. That's incredible. Um, can you can you explain to us uh, what, what it was that caused the disaster on a technical level? And how, how did it unfold? Uh, yes, I can. In fact, it was be honest, it was very surprising to me because I was in the launch control center during that launch with a headset on at a console. And when the failure actually occurred, I actually breathed a great sigh of relief when the boosters got off at the launch pad because I believed that if it would fail, because of this problem or concern we had of the joint failing at ignition essentially when it pressurizes and opens this joint a little bit, the gas go right by it and there'll be a flame come out, it'll hit the tank, 
and the whole thing would probably explode about the time it cleared the tower. That did not happen. It was 73 seconds later when it looked, appeared like the boosters just came off of the tank for some reason early, about a minute early, and then the tank blew up because the only thing you could still see flying as if nothing happened was the two solid rocket boosters, and it kept on going. And I really believed at that time that the only thing that did not cause the failure was the solid rockets. That would be an engine failure or a tank until I went to the Marshall Space Flight Center the next day as part of the failure team and uh, saw the, uh, a film of the fire coming out of the side of the solid rocket booster way late, like past 70 seconds. And I said, I don't understand how that could happen. I would think of this leak because of the concern we had the night before. It would have been before it cleared the tower. So I asked them to, if they looked at any films of the actual withdrawal, and they hadn't. So they went and got one. I said, I want one looking exactly where we see this fire coming out later. And unfortunately, it froze, the camera froze, so they didn't have it. Oh. So then I said, get the one that's next to that, or closest. And sure enough, when you looked at that, you could see a big puff of black smoke at they said, what time should it be? I said, sometime between six-tenths and seven-tenths of a second. And it was .688, this big puff of black smoke coming out of that joint. And it did fail at exactly the reason we thought, at the time we thought, what happened is that this joint was so cold that the propellant that we have in these big boosters, it's a solid propellant. Uh, and it's basically uh, a fuel of aluminum powder uh, with an ammonium perchlorate oxidizer that when it dissociates, it releases a huge amount of, oc of oxygen that burns this aluminum powder to aluminum oxide. <laughs> and this aluminum oxide is in a liquid form at the temperatures it creates, which is nearly 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that liquid aluminum oxide coming through, hit that cold steel as it went past and burned these O-rings and solidified and actually ended up making a seal right where it burned the rubber on the aluminum on the O-rings and it stayed sealed until it got into what's called max Q, maximum dynamic pressure, which is the, the highest aerodynamic loads in the vehicle. It causes it to shake and, and start to vibrate. And it broke that seal loose, and that's why we saw the flame come out of the joint that late. And uh, But these seals are much like the O-rings, are much like the O-rings you have in washers in essentially a garden hose or your sink. Those prevent the water from coming out the side. Sometimes it does on your hose. And, and these seals prevent the hot gas of the rocket exhaust from coming out the side. So they're very similar, just much larger. In your opinion, if you had to pick one thing, what, what or who do you think is to blame for the Challenger disaster? Well, if I had to pick uh, one person that I feel very strongly that really could have prevented it more than once, that did not, was a fellow by the name of Larry Malloy, who was a NASA manager of the solid rocket booster that 
we reported to because that's where our contract went through. And he was there that evening, and I argued with him after the decision got changed why I don't think it was smart to accept a change that we are taking risks we shouldn't take and that they ought to reconsider that decision because I also found out that our ships out at sea that were going to recover the boosters wouldn't even be there because of the storm that came in. They were heading into shore. And I also told them that I knew there was a lot of water systems near the vehicle. And if it gets that cold, there's going to be ice all over, including on the vehicle that presents a potential debris problem for hitting the sensitive tiles on the orbiter. And all three of those together ought to be more than a good reason to stop the launch if they didn't accept our recommendation just based on the O-ring problem. And they refused to accept that. And I argued for about an hour after the decision was made why they can't accept that recommendation. I also told them they were asking us to fly these boosters in an environment they were never qualified to, to fly in. And that's a violation of the protocol. You can't do that. Mm. And in fact, I said, I hope nothing happens to stand yeah. before a board of inquiry, explain why I told you to fly my boosters, environment I knew they were never qualified to fly in, and they mm. still didn't change it. Well, even though he was stubborn and didn't change it, what really surprised me later that I never found out until after the accident was that the way the shuttle is launch the mission management team that really makes the final decisions in a room by themselves uh, at the launch control center. I'm in the adjacent room, which is called the support contractors room. That's monitoring the data coming off of the systems that I'm responsible for. In between is there essentially a room there with a guard with an M16 to keep you from running into the launch control center and doing something bad. Wow. But at that time, 100% of the people in the launch control center were all NASA people. Larry Malloy was in there as well as his boss, named uh, <coughs> Cecil. And he was a member of the, his boss was a member of the mission management team as representative from, uh, from Reinhardt was his name, Stanley Reinhardt, was a member of that team. And they never even mentioned to any of the other members of the team or the launch director there was even any concern about cold temperatures at all. Wow. They said there's no concerns. Never said a word about that. And what even made this worse was there was a concern about the icing that I mentioned. And they the head of the team, the management team, sent a special ice team out to assess the ice about an hour and a half before launch. But he also had them take a, a infrared pyrometer that measures surface temperatures instantaneously and record some temperatures on various parts of the vehicle and the launch support system. Now, these temperatures weren't part of the launch criteria, but he had them recorded, and they did. And for some strange reason, they measured nine degrees Fahrenheit in the only joint that failed in that area. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and they never reported it because it wasn't a requirement to report it. They had to report their assessment of the ice because that was a requirement for launch. Mm. 
but because Larry Malloy never even made them uh, aware of our concern of low temperatures, I'm convinced to this day that Arnie Aldrich, who's head of that team, would say, well, what temperature measure on the solid rocket boosters? And if they had said nine degrees in one area and we were concerned about 29 degrees, he would have shut that launch down in a heartbeat. But again, wow. it's not doing what you're supposed to be doing. This in, and silence is the, the biggest problem in this kind of decision making. And they never pass that on. Uh, I, to this day, I'm, I'm stunned that they didn't. And there, you have no uh, idea why uh, he wouldn't, Malloy wouldn't have relayed that information. Oh, I do. <laughs> what I also found out after uh, the failure was that the launch before Challenger that uh, Congressman Bill Nelson from Florida was on, became a senator and now he's retired, I think, was on. I uh, was supposed to launch about a week before Christmas of 85. And it got down to within a few seconds of launching and it shut down. And the reason it shut down is that there was an electronic card in the power system it used for the solid rocket booster nozzles that actually move them so they can steer the vehicle. Call called auxiliary power unit. had an electronic card in there. This was the first flight of the electronic card, and it was from a second source. And it failed. And that's what caused it to shut down, which was a big delay in that launch. And when the Johnson Space Center found out about that, they said, you know, that new source, they got that card, was almost identical to a card they had rejected almost six months ago for use in the space shuttle main engines to move them. And they just chewed out Larry Malloy's boss, Dr. Bill Lucas, and Stan Reinhardt and Larry for allowing that card to be ever used after it had already been rejected for use by NASA at another center. It caused a huge delay. Because of that, I could tell he wasn't going to be responsible for another delay again because he got royally chewed out by his shoot-the-messenger manager he worked for, Bill Lucas, in the first place. And as a result, he wasn't going to mention anything that might result in a delay of a launch that he'd have to be accounted for. And so it's it just a, he made one mistake after another, in my opinion. I can't thank you so, enough for uh, bringing so much clarity to um, this terrible disaster. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Here to serve. And fact checker Chris Smith. Here uh, also to serve, I guess. Well, thank you both for serving. Um, And let's just say that Alan McDonald served us the goods. Yeah. Am I right? Uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was there on the ground, and I don't know what sort of, uh, what clearer perspective you could ask for. (laughs) No. He was in the, he was having the conversations. He was right there making the decisions. And it's also just fascinating to hear from somebody who works in a field where, you know, so many people, their lives were defined by this one moment and this one event. And, you know, it was clear that, like, he had thought about this moment, you know, uh, obviously his his whole life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all all around, not just the, the, even the the nation at the time. Um, It was such a monumental. Yeah. Uh, time and, and historical event and to have someone who was like you said on the ground witnessing the before and the after of of this disaster is like I mean alarmist an alarmist dream <laughs> well, yeah and I I can't believe like we've talked we've talked to some heroes I think we can definitely say that Alan was a hero because he had the conviction to stand by his opinion and refuse to sign the document saying it was safe to fly. Um, and that's a scary thing to do. And we heard from him that his colleague or his whoever that other guy was, who he said was to blame, didn't lacked that same conviction. And so I would like to nominate Alan to get the big clap. I think it's well deserved. Alan, you're getting the big clap. Great job. Yes, I'm sure that he would have wished that obviously this would have had a different outcome. But like you said, I think that there's so much bravery in standing by your beliefs. And also, you, he he's the expert. He had the knowledge. He knew he knew that this shouldn't have happened. And well, it's I, just I, like standing by the facts, like the pure yeah. science and the facts instead of people exhibiting wishful thinking and willful ignorance. I mean, so does this change your verdict at all? I think that we need to talk, discuss this because for me, you know, we ended up sending the uh, Morton 
fickle uh, higher ups to the alarmist jail and 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 only giving NASA the big slap. And I, I honestly, I I think that. In my opinion, the guy Malloy, who he named uh, at NASA, I think he, I think he deserves to go to jail, and I think NASA can continue to get slapped. But <laughs> I think for for once, I, I do believe he, th- this guy, really had the opportunity to change the course of a disaster just by listening to the people that actually had knowledge and science backing them up, and he didn't. And, and Alan, you know, described the, the pressure that he was feeling. And we were circling this pressure to launch, and we actually were not far. It, it really was right. a huge factor. There mm-hmm. was, I, I, I agree. I agree to a certain extent. And I think, the, although I will say, because Alan said the decision was made in that sort of adjacent room by all those NASA people, we just don't know what happened behind those closed doors. And and so, I don't know, for that reason, maybe not just, just Lar- Lawrence Malloy, which was the guy's name, uh, sending him to jail, but maybe we, maybe we just keep it as NASA? Well, no, because Malloy was the one who refrained from giving the higher-ups at NASA the information. Right, he withheld. He, d- he withheld. The O-ring... Because and he didn't want to get yelled at again, which goes to NASA company culture. Right. It's true. So, we had a lot of the right things on the board. I think at the end of the day, I guess, yeah, it does does stay with that guy, Lawrence Malloy, who I, just... Yeah, you know. and I think just knowing how the conversations went, you know, before that, we didn't have that kind of information, but Alan really brought a lot of clarity when it, you know, who said what and how it the the information was... Uh, transferred is is very important in this particular case. So, again, I think Malloy deserves to go to jail, and I think NASA company culture, to be specific, like you said, should get the big slap in this case. Now, just a quick argument for maybe giving Morton Thickle the higher ups there at the big slap is that they did, they came out at first and they said it's only safe to fly at this temperature. And then they went back and reconfigured, looked at the quote unquote research um, that, you know, Alan never got eyes on. So who knows what they were sort of contriving. And then they changed their answer. So to me, I also think I have a hard time letting them fully off the hook. Mm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. This is a really tough one. I totally agree now because they were the ones that had to sign off, remember? Yeah. So Morton, and I think we keep calling it Thickle, but he called it Thiacol, but whatever. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) um, Apologize. (laughs) But but, but I think that um, the higher-ups at Morton Thiacol, they signed that, they signed on the dotted line. They put their names, uh, and and, and NASA, in, in all fairness... While they might have known better, they sort of passed off the responsibility on Martin Thiokol. And they said, well, you guys sign off. That way, we're sort of, our butts are covered. Right. I I take your point. I take your point. It is because you have to think about like, well, but what was NASA that scary that they caused all of these people, you know, engineers and their employees to kind of cower 
and feel like they had to give them the answer they wanted. So it's just kind of like, do we blame the people who bowed to NASA or it's just it's it's really tough. Right. It is tough. It's like we needed more Allens at Morton Thiacal. We needed not just one Allen. We needed like 20. Yeah. (laughs) We need, we need more Allens. We need to clone. Doesn't NASA have the technology to clone Allen? <laughs> they should be working on that. That's probably why they took a three-year break. They were like, let's see if we can clone Allen. Oh, man. I just loved the moment when Allen said, you know, I made the best decision I've ever made in my life when I decided not to sign because you know you never know like you wake up every day you're like is this the day I'm going to be faced with some huge decision that I don't even know the consequences of so you just hope that you have the foresight to make the right call in a situation like that but I guess luckily none of us have jobs that are that important that's right (laughs) is today the day I say a joke on a podcast that changes the world (laughs) it'll never get to that probably not (laughs) no or like, yeah, do I cut this joke that Chris said? Because it could go either way. <laughs> and then who is the bla- who's to blame? I'm sort of NASA and you I mean, you could blame Morton me Fogel. for even... Uh, <laughs> having the podcast Having to begin the podcast, with. exactly. So it, this is a tough call. Um, I, I, I guess we could... I don't want to slap lack of Allens. Um, that's just not fair to the the... Uh, you know, Alan himself, but I take your point that said, you know, what, what you also said that NASA was, what were they just this big, scary company that, um, these, that Morton Thiokol couldn't, uh, back down to them. That's something that's up in the air. And I think that just may, perhaps it's com- general, like company culture fear, that should get the big slap. Mm. Yeah. Although I really want to just, maybe maybe you were right, your instinct was right to slap NASA because NASA created the dynamic. Yeah. All right. I mean, oh, you don't I, have, I don't know. It's so hard, Rebecca. Really you have to hard. make the call. I think that if you're going to run a space program, well, but that said, again, <laughs> Malloy... <laughs> didn't tell the higher-ups at NASA, right? Oh, you know what? We could do the backhand. Oh, give... uh, Yes, finally. Something we've (laughs) totally made up. (laughs) (laughs) Helps us once again. (laughs) Okay, I think think that's the call. I'm going to make it. Malloy, Lawrence Malloy, you're going to the alarmist jail. NASA... You're getting the big slap. Morton Thiokol, you're getting the backhand of that big slap. All right. <laughs> Phew. Feels right. Yeah, wow. that feels really that feels really good. Yeah. This is our third um rescindment no i'm saying that that's the incorrect word <laughs> Wait, i don't know overturned I verdict good to me <laughs> yeah this is our third overturned verdict but you know the evidence that was presented was undeniable and mm-hmm. we're in the business of correcting history's wrongs mm-hmm. so 
That said, we got to correct who's in our alarmist jail. Right. And with each alarmist decision, we are making history. And so we can go back <laughs> and we can change our own history that we make. And true. Upon yeah. rethinking about it. That's true. And we can, we, we're open to hearing people's thoughts and ideas. The company culture at The Alarmist is if you have something to say, mm-hmm. please say it to us. Um, and so, yeah, we're not afraid to admit when we've been wrong. Yeah, that's right. And this, but we still will not re-examine our process, and we will continue to listen to the expert after we have put somebody in the jail. <laughs> because... Well, it wouldn't be fun. It would be too easy if we yeah. had the experts on before we record the episodes, right. don't you think? Yeah, yes, totally. we love being wrong. I don't think our alarmy would want that. No, 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 <laughs> We're no, here no. to serve the alarmy. But, you know, again, we're not, I'm not a, we're not scary bosses over here. No. We're kind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we Bring are. up your grievances. Yeah, yeah. I have a little update on our uh, situation on Apple Podcasts, because you know I've been on this campaign to get our star rating up. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're, um, our, you're the alarmist hero these days. Yes, I'm trying, but we're still at four out of five stars, which is frankly devastating. Oh. Um, that being said, I see you all... Um, writing your rating and reviewing and I want to say thank you and I'll just read one real quick I think you guys will like to hear this okay um and this comes in from Dan from Long Beach which is where I'm from um smart funny and all-around good time five stars this is my favorite podcast I've learned so many fun facts aka death stats while laughing my way through each episode a lot of the charm of this podcast comes from the hosts who are smart funny and humble making the listening experience engaging and approachable this is truly a -a one-of-a-kind podcast that allows me to take a moment away from our overwhelming world and reflect on the past keep up the great work Wow, what a great uh, review. Is that your that uh, nice? Is it a cousin from Long Beach, Amanda? That you I think <laughs> I think it's one of my exes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you put in the you put in the hard work, Amanda, and it's paying <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a good guy. I wonder why you let him go. He was the one who got away. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's still with us. So <laughs> Well, thank you to Dan, and thank you to all of our listeners who are reviewing. If you haven't reviewed yet, this take listen to this as an opportunity to go and do so. And stay tuned for next week's episode. We will be talking about the death of Che Guevara. Erios. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.